Welcome to Create Photography. This is Daniel. In today's episode, I will have a conversation with Alethea Casey. Alethea is a photographic artist and documentary photographer based in London. During the last 12 years, she has published and worked with major newspapers and news outlets and international publications. She has exhibited her work internationally and won many prestigious awards. She is also the founding member of Lumina Collective. She completed her master's in photojournalism and documentary photography at the London College of Communication. She is also a lecturer at the Royal Academy of Art in The Hague and at the London College of Communication. All right. Alicia, welcome to Create Photography. I look very much forward to speaking with you today. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for having me on. It's, um, it's lovely to meet you online. Wonderful. So, Alicia, you are originally from Australia. Can you tell me a little bit more about your upbringing and maybe give us a little bit of an idea, you know, where you were born and, you know. Yeah, sure. and so forth. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I was born in a place called Wagga. It's actually Wagga Wagga, which is um, which is an indigenous name, meaning meeting place. Mm. Um, so, well, actually, I was born in, in another small town called Goulburn, and then my parents moved to Wagga when I was about one, I think, maybe eight, ten months old. Um, my, my parents are both teachers, so my dad mm -hmm. was working at the university where he worked, I think, for about 30 years in Wagga. Um, so we moved there as a family. I have, uh, I'm the youngest of three, so I have an older brother and sister mm -hmm. and I grew up there. Um, I, it's, it's interesting. I, I kind of had a fairly idyllic childhood actually in, in a way, which is, it's <laughs> rare. Nice. I, I know, I know. <laughs> all the other stuff came Can't later. Complain. All the difficult <laughs> stuff came later. Um, but I was I was home educated from a re from from the word go. So I actually I've never been to school in Australia ever. Um, so my parents, both my parents, home educated myself and my brother and sister for our entire education until um, until what what we would call year ten, the the high school certificate, um, which mm. obviously would be called something different in in every country. But the whole way through, so I kind of had this you know kind of these memories of just barefoot, being barefoot, swimming all day jumping on the trampoline all day, doing art all day and being in my dark room. And that's kind of mm -hmm. hanging out with my siblings. And that's really my memory of childhood. Um, uh -huh. It was it was great. You, you don't realise at the time how great it is, of right. course. Um, it's only retrospectively that you go, wow, that was pretty good. That was pretty carefree. And growing up in a small country town in Australia was, um, I suppose it was somewhat – um, insular in a, in a in a way, but I didn't mm -hmm. I didn't understand that or know that at the time because again you, you only know what you know and you only know what mm -hmm. what you're exposed to. Um, but, were you close to? A, mm -hmm. So you said a small town. Were you? Is this what they call the outback? Were you kind of literally kind of in the no in the outback of Australia, or is no. that more it, country or countryside or um, I, more more countryside? So it's a farming it's a farming town. I mean okay. it's 
it, it, it boasts the, the name very proudly of being the largest inland city in New mm. South Wales. So it calls itself a city, um, okay. but of course it's not. It's, okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a city by Australian standards perhaps, but it's a town. So there's about, when I grew up, there were about 50,000 people there. So it's, there's a population of probably now about 58,000 people. So mm. I suppose it's relatively large, but it is a farming community. So that's mm-hmm. why that's why the town exists because it's a it's a large farming area and agricultural area and mm-hmm. the university there began because it's an agricultural university as well mm. and then of okay. course there's arts and, and and humanities as well um and you know there's a there's a royal air force base as well so there mm. are some other kind of structures that that exist to to bring yep. people into the town um right. but my parents no longer live there so my parents moved away from there when when we all left home and and bought a place down the coast which is lovely so i'm quite lucky particularly for my photography that that now when i go back to australia i actually go back to the coastal area go to the coast yeah mm. that's nice <laughs> it is it's lovely what's the next largest town from from your from your hometown or well to be honest i mean it's probably it's probably sydney it's 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 Wagga is exactly between sydney and melbourne so hmm. it's it's about okay. 500 kilometers from both roughly 500 oh, wow. kilometers from both okay. so there are others there are or are other small towns as well and small country mm-hmm. towns but the the larger city uh, where you could go to either sydney or melbourne they're much the same distance mm-hmm. um and you know being australian that's what we do we, we travel pretty frequently and very and and very easily in a sense it's mm-hmm. it wouldn't it wasn't uncommon when i was growing up to travel to sydney for the weekend and or oh, even okay. a day or two so that's mm. we're kind of used to that culturally because distances yeah. are so great it's just something that that people do you just you know inter- you drive yeah with that distance hours. is actually interesting that you mm. would travel <laughs> mm. it's it's absolutely it's perfectly normal for um yeah. Yeah, for when, when you're growing up, we, we I did a lot of sport growing up and we would always travel to Sydney just for one night, sometimes even for a day, which is kind hmm. of remarkable thinking back now. Yeah. I don't yeah, think that's the norm in Europe. Yeah, and in the US, I guess people tend to yeah. do things like this too, but with by car but would you travel by car then or train or was no, it always by car? That's o- always by car. Okay. Yes. It's it's yeah. it's interesting and that's something I I um I suppose now that I now that I live in London, it's something I love about London that I don't have to drive long distances in a car. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't miss that. I have to be yes. <laughs> a lot of a lot of memories of childhood of um of l- very long trips in the boiling heat before air conditioning, of course, and you know you, your legs would be sticking to the seat <laughs> with yeah. because it was so hot, and they were you know everyone would be fighting, and <laughs> all the children would be very yeah. unpleasant and very unhappy. Um, oh, so yeah. I have a lot of those kinds of memories. Yeah, and so so I think you did briefly mention the dark rooms. So so mm-hmm. how did you start with photography? Was that so? It, supposedly it was during that time already when you when you grew up. Is that mm. correct? Absolutely, yes, exactly. Well, because I was home educated, I had a lot of free time. So, as as anyone who well who went through lockdown with their children, um, or anyone who has been home educated or, or has has home educated their own children, you'll know that you can kind of get through a lot of the work quite quite quickly. So the kind of mm-hmm. more academic, I don't like that term, but I'll use it because I lack a, a better word, the more academic subjects you can kind of get through quite quickly. So by lunchtime, you're pretty much done, um, hmm. in, which is my memory of it and was also my experience when, when I home educated my son during lockdown. And 
that gave me, you know, the, the entire afternoon free to do to do what I wanted. And I would always, I would always turn to art. So I would paint hmm. and I would draw. Um, and I was really lucky because my parents saw this creative side in me, and they really really encouraged and supported and pushed this creative side. Um, mm-hmm. And I think in a way that's why I look back on my childhood and, and, and think how idyllic it was because I never had this, uh, and a lot of friends of mine or people I've spoken to kind of have pe- parental guidance around, oh, art is just as, you know, as, as it's just a hobby. It's just something mm-hmm. to do while you're waiting to do something else or it's not a career. It's not something that you can invest in as an entire career um but my parents were the opposite and they really encouraged me to to do what to do what moved me you know to do what I felt passionately about and that was visual art um and I so I I always painted and and I drew and I made things with my hands but I didn't realize how much I loved photography um until I was I was about 14 and and I I was going to a TAFE college TAFE is a is a um it, it's a college for um mature age students and mm. I was not mature age I was I was <laughs> the youngest student on the whole campus but I was I was allowed to go because I'd been home educated so mm-hmm. I was doing a ceramics course there which I absolutely loved but it didn't there was still something missing. And then when the photographer came in to photograph the pots on the very last day, I, I was just absolutely intrigued by how he lit things, how he focused, capturing. It was just a, a still, you know, fairly bland object, but mm-hmm. I was just intrigued by it. I was absolutely amazed by it. Um, and so I was I was just in love with I've I've been in love with it ever since. Um, mm-hmm. I now photograph a lot more interesting things, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's where it started. Um, oh. So I was 14 and, and I just absolutely fell in love with photography and that was it. I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and my parents built a, a dark room in a very small cupboard in the house mm. and I was in there for hours on end <laughs> day producing my work for, you know, developing films and they, I didn't have running water. <laughs> it's a bit yeah. problematic. I have to race outside to the tap. But so, the, so the, I, don't, I don't think many of the prints have lasted, but um, I don't think I actually fixed them properly, probably in retrospect. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit problematic. But it was, um, you know, it's just such a joy to to be in the dark room and and make my own work from that age. So I've never I've never stopped, and I've I've never stopped using the dark room and film either. Right, you're still yeah, and we'll we'll talk more about that too. But you're still using mm. film. Mm. Um, are are you um, are you also using any digital, or is it mostly do you just stick to film photography? I only do film, actually. Okay. I just I, I just lent my digital to a friend, and I kind of said, "Just, just keep it for as long as you want." I, <laughs> I never use it, um, except maybe to photograph a print from Neg, um, and then maybe to digitalize it that to, to yes. digitalize it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but apart from that, no, I, I literally don't think I've ever taken a decent photograph with a digital camera in my mm. entire life. I just mm. cannot do it. I have some strange mental block, and yeah. I don't produce anything of of any of any decent quality um mm. so it's, yeah. it's always film which is yeah. getting difficult these days because of the cost yeah of it. it's getting mm. a little um a little more challenging at times for sure mm, <laughs> but fortunately there's a good community and and hopefully there's gonna continue to be a market for it 
but um well i hope so i think there is i mean with with my teaching i notice you know more and more students want to shoot with film um mm-hmm. and they want to investigate that kind of that methodology and that they they want to engage with a slower process i think as the world keeps getting quicker and quicker and quicker and mm-hmm. everything is moving so fast people right. are understanding that actually sometimes to step back and move slowly is a really beautiful thing and a yep. lot of people are interested in doing that which i think is just wonderful yep. no I, I i totally agree and and i think right with with digital the the risk is you you just well some people call it spray and pray or <laughs> you know you're just um photographing so much but not really thinking about it not that you have to mm-hmm. overthink it either but it's it's just so interesting with film how it does tend to force us to slow down i do actually some film photography too or actually mostly film as well but I, I i think i i do actually enjoy that that a little bit more maybe deliberate at times um yes it's it's the alchemy of it isn't it as well you know it's it's yep. magic and we have yep. <laughs> so little i think we have so little magic in our lives these days because we understand the workings of things so well and we we understand technology so well and we use it so frequently yeah. that that to have something that's magic and that that might go wrong and that's that that relies on a little bit of chance and a little bit of luck a bit of magic and all of these things combined are just they're just so wonderful they're so exciting and actually yeah. the anticipation of film as well i think is a huge yeah. part of it that you have to wait and that yeah. <laughs> you know that is part of the joy you've got to wait to see what you've come up with and that's right. a lovely thing yeah and so um when you when you process your so, so do you do everything basically yourself so from developing negatives and and then you even do you darkroom print your work as well I I don't print as much actually, Daniel, okay. as I should. Um, okay. I do develop everything myself, so I develop my black and white and my color. I'm really lucky; I can use where I work to develop mm-hmm. uh, my color, which is amazing. Um, and I develop all my black and white as well by hand. Not that I shoot much in black and white. Um, mm-hmm. And then I do print in color as well. However, the final print for print sales and things like that is is from a digital file. So I will yep. scan and a little, little bit of retouching and yep. then print from um, from the digital file just because it's I just it's, it's what the, a really boring answer, but it's just because I don't have the time. You know, it's it's yep. that old thing, isn't it? It's such a yep. such a dull thing to admit to, but it's so true. Well, I mean that's that's a fair it's a fair answer, right? Mm. And and I know I think in the olden times people obviously would the photographers would retouch by hand which is mm. can be very tedious I, I suppose it can but it's such actually the first exhibition i ever had i printed all of my prints all my color prints by hand mm. it's just wow. madness in retrospect and and i <laughs> and i was i was retouched i retouched them all myself by hand and oh wow as i was hanging them i was like oh that's not quite right quick little retouch retouch <laughs> so it's right up to the last minute <laughs> but it's it's quite therapeutic i think that that yep. kind of dot by dot by dot by dot it's it's a lovely yeah. process actually i quite enjoy it oh yeah mm. um so switching gears a little bit so you mm. described yourself as a photographic artist, but also a documentary photographer. And, mm. you know, we can argue both are just mm. terms, they're concepts, right? But mm. is there, do you identify maybe with one term more than the other? 
or in other words maybe do you feel more like an artist or a documentarian <laughs> or both it, I th it's a it's it's a big question in a way but it's not one i actually have a an exact answer to because okay. i think it shifts and changes um the way I work is that there are no rules to my work. So well, a good example of it, of it actually is that today I was doing some some work with, with my son actually. We were just kind of having a, an art day and mm. we were using prints that I had printed in the colour dark rooms as um, – uh, the word's going completely out of my head um, – when you, when you lay the object um, on the piece of paper and expose it to light, photo – it's embarrassing, Daniel. I've completely, oh. completely lost the word. Um, anyway, yeah, the, it'll, um, it'll come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, so I have, um, I had collected um, all of these cicada wings when I was in Australia um, mm. a couple, a couple of years ago, and I've kept them with me. So they're, they're dried cicada wings, and they're so, they're so beautiful and so intricate, intricate, and so exquisitely delicate and i've got yeah. hundreds of them so um, i spread these cicada wings a few weeks ago onto the color paper in the color darkroom i exposed it to light and i got the color exactly what the, the color of the tonality i wanted and the color i wanted so they're kind of these turquoisey bluey turquoisey prints um so then so then they're processed um and fixed and then I had those those prints and my son and I were then collaging them and then we were painting over them with inks and mm. then re-collaging and then I will re-scan that work and then I will make another photo montage of that work from it from a digital print. So there's there's no um there's no rules to my process. And I think that's really important for mm -hmm. me that I don't feel hemmed in by these well it's it's shot on film, or it's a or it's a darkroom process. There's, therefore, it must remain only a darkroom right. process or a film. It's <laughs> yeah. there are no rules. You know what? You can shoot on film and then scan and then digitally yeah. manipulate it, then print it off and chop it up and collage it, and then scratch the. You know, I scratch a lot of my prints and a lot of my negs as well, or I can paint my negs or paint my prints. Um, so I guess in that way, I would define myself as an artist, as a photographic mm -hmm. artist. Mm -hmm. But then all of my work is very much based around either a narrative or a mm -hmm. very specific theme that I'm trying to unpick um, or trying to research or attempting to understand better through the process of making photographic work. Mm -hmm. So I guess as you as you said at the beginning, it's probably a combination of both. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's always very personal, you know, it's because I work very intuitively, there's, mm -hmm. I, ha I have the, the theme or the idea that I'm exploring, but then it's this intuitive reaction to, to what's happening with myself as well, you know, emotionally, what's happening in my life. And so in that way, I'm, I'm definitely, I suppose, an artist that I'm exploring emotional, an emotional reaction, um, to to situations and to what I'm what I'm going through at that point in life, but it's overlaid by a narrative um, that that I'm researching. So it's a combination of of research and practice as well in that way. So I suppose it's an art practice which is led by a, a documentary slant or a documentary uh, documentary themes. Right, right. No, that's a great answer. And actually, mm -hmm. the the reason I I asked that a little bit on purpose because I I also like to sometimes challenge that the so-called rules um mm. Mm. including 
right? People talk about the rules of documentary photography, which often people infer one cannot modify the images. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, now, you know, I, I do understand, right, from a strictly historian perspective, yes, mm -hmm. we we do not want to modify or falsify images. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, but but then it seems like you are, through your work, through your art, uh, still documenting and addressing major issues. And so, so I think it's a really, to me, really fascinating uh, combination. And I, I like mm -hmm. the fact that she said you, you like to or there are no rules, and, and mm. at, at least artistically, right? And and so, anyway, um, I wanted to, and that brings me actually to uh, talking with you about some of your projects. Mm. <laughs> and um, I, I'd like to start with um, After the Apology, um, which is a project that features children from the so-called stolen generation. Mm. Um, if you... Could you tell tell me a little bit more about that project? Mm, absolutely. So it's a project that I started in um, 2012, actually. I had been living in London previously. Um, well, actually, I'd been living in South America and then London. So I'd been away from Australia for quite some time and I moved back to Australia and I I came back. I came back home because I'll, I'll always consider Australia home. I came back home with a really new perspective on Australia's history and a new understanding of it from my time spent abroad. And I, I moved back to Australia and I was just utterly shocked that things hadn't moved forward in what we call the reconciliation process, which is really the acknowledging, the acknowledgement of the wrongdoings um, of the past. So the wrongdoings which occurred during colonization and then as a direct result of colonization for the next for the next hundred hundred years up till now, which is still arguably still still ongoing. Mm -hmm. um, and there were so many atrocities, there were so many um so many traumas inflicted on First Nations Australians. Um, but one that really struck my attention was the what hap was the this what what we call the stolen generations. And these were the children who were forcibly removed from their parents of origin, so from their parents and placed into institutions and often church-run um, institutions or children's homes or other families, really in, in what was a, an intentional breeding out of, of Indigenous Australians. Um, mm. And it, it happened from around the 1920s, possibly earlier, but there's a, do a lot of documentation from the 1920s, right up till the 1970s, and some people will argue right into the 1980s. Um, and so these children were forcibly removed from their parents. Their parents had no access to legal aid. They had no legal rights to reclaim their own children. And the Australian government made it legal for, for the government to remove these children and raise them in in very often absolutely devastating circumstances where they had no access to their their own families. They never saw their parents again. In many cases, they were not raised with the with their indigenous language, their indigenous culture, indigenous beliefs. All of these things were completely denied to them, and they were raised in 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 white Australian society. Um, 
and and it's it the ongoing trauma of this is is still seen and will be seen for generations so the intergenerational trauma is is in, is is profound um and i i really wanted to make a photographic series about this um because in in the late 90s in 1997 there there was an investigation into what happened and into this forcible removal of children from their families and it was called the bringing them home report so this report was then put put to parliament and the australian government was asked to acknowledge and and apologize for what they what they had done for for their actions um during during the last 100 years specifically um and and up until up until the Kevin Rudd government, the the, the previous governments had always denied doing this. Mm. So in two thousand and eight, Kevin Rudd made a formal apology to all Indigenous Australians for for the trauma that had been inflicted on First Nations people in Australia, and specifically apologised to the stolen generations who had been removed from their families, and. I, I wanted to create something visual around this because there had been documentary films made about it um, and they are made as a document, as a testament. Um, that they, they include interviews, they include documentation. So those documentaries are very much a testament to to these stories of, of the people who were either removed or had parents removed or were part of the generations that were impacted by what happened. But I didn't know of any still photography work that had been created at that time. So I wanted to create an emotional piece of work that was based on, on the bringing them home report for a bit, for a start, and then the government's subsequent apology. But then the ongoing, the ongoing effects of the trauma that, that had been inflicted on these people. And so I started to work with with First Nations women specifically, mainly because it was a point of contact that that I, I'm a woman and and I knew a lot of women who were part of the stolen generation. So the mm. gender side of it wasn't wasn't kind of intentional. It just started happening like that. And and I wanted I wanted women's voices to be heard. I wanted them to have their say about their experience and and the ongoing the ongoing impact um of, of how this this didn't stop you know the the trauma that was inflicted on them w- was ongoing and i wanted people to reflect on this um and i wanted i wanted the work to speak to an audience in an emotional way without preaching um about the i think sometimes we can fall into the kind of a problematic way of of being very heavy-handed because what happened during what during colonization and then afterwards was was so abhorrent and so horrific that we can become very kind of dogmatic in our way of telling story and I wanted to be suggestive and emotional so that mm-hmm. it could really engage an audience and really speak to them on an emotional level it's based on on facts of course and it has those facts to kind of tether the series but it's it's based on emotion um and it's based on the stories of these women who suffered as as a direct result of um of, of these laws which which allowed the australian government to do this mhm now clearly the 
the underlying story, right, is tremendously traumatic and, and the terrible part of, of Australians' colonial history. And uh, mm. I know in the U.S. there's there's a you know a similar uh, even older history uh, of slavery. And you know I think many geographies struggle with, with with those histories. But can you talk? And you you alluded to it a little bit. But can you talk a little bit about the techniques you use to convey this story? Uh, I, I personally actually love the colors, and you you also juxtaposed if that is a verb, mm. uh, landscapes, <laughs> uh, and uh, to the portraits, right, in this, in this particular uh, project. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'd just love to hear a little bit more about, you know, the techniques, how you conveyed that, yeah, try to mm. convey the story. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Well, they were all shot on large format film, a large format film camera. So I okay. was using tilt shift a lot. So that's why you get this kind of softness, and it's a very, a very sharp focal point, usually of the eyes. Or the intention was was the, the eyes of of the person in the portrait, and the rest is thrown out of focus. And then, because of the way I loaded the film and then developed the film, I would often get light leaks um, accidentally mm. at first because I would accidentally open the the back at, at at the wrong point because it's quite difficult I, i'm using so I, I apologize for the technical information for those who are not interested in technical <laughs> side but it is quite interesting i was shooting with so i use a 120 back on on a large format film mm. um mainly because mm. it's just it allows me 10 frames then on that 120 film and yep. I often photograph at the beach and at really impractical places and I don't want to be loading large format slide backs um, yep. in those kinds of with sand you know the sand everywhere yep. so so I would but but the interesting thing about that is that you need to wind it on twice and then it wouldn't actually often I would not be completely sure that, that that it had taken that it was actually winding on at the beginning mm. and so I would open the back just oh, to have it to kind of double check and then close it again. I'd waste a few frames because obviously that part of the yep. film then is exposed. But then I realized, oh, actually, this is really interesting. I quite like this. So then I would kind of open it just a tiny bit and very, <laughs> you know, very filtered light and just kind of just crack it slightly. So a tiny bit of light would come in at random parts mm. um, onto the film. So then it became an intentional, an intentional thing of usually it would be, you know, the, the light coming in will will then um, be on the film as yellow or red generally. Mm-hmm. So that became a part of it and particularly in the landscapes. Um mm. And then the the overall colour is for me really important that I generally start a project with a colour in mind and then it mm. becomes an intuitive an intuitive work after that. But but I couldn't get away from reds and oranges. It was kind of mm. just felt like it was it was in me at that time. And that's largely because the first person who I worked with, um, her name is Susan, Susan Moylan Coombs, who is um who is from the Stolen Generation. She grew. She was born in the Northern Territory, which is the far, far north of Australia in the centre. Mm-hmm. She was born there and then she was taken from her family and moved all the way to Sydney. Um, mm. So, you know, thousands of kilometres away. So where she was born is is in this area where the earth is red. Um, it's, you know, it's bright, bright, incredible red and orange and the sunsets are bright and the colours are intense and and it's war the, the colours are hot. The environment's hot as well and the colours mm-hmm. are really <laughs> hot. So this really came through that I wanted the colours to be warm and I wanted yep. them to be really, really depicting the landscape and coming from the landscape. Um mm-hmm. 
And then the landscape that the landscapes I paired them up with, again, this was an intuitive that I hadn't planned that from the very beginning. It just kind of happened in the first mm. photo shoot with Susan that we were talking about landscapes. And of course, all indigenous people have a very special relationship to their to their land, to their place of belonging. And so so Susan has a very you know, a very deep attachment to both where she grew up, but also the landscape where she was from with and for where she was from. And, and with, with first nations people, of course, they, they have very deep spiritual beliefs and a very deep knowledge of their, of the area of, from which they're from. And so to be removed from from your home, from the place you belong, and then taken often thousands of kilometers to a completely different area is it's not only robbing that person of their family and of their culture, it's also robbing them of, of their place, which is so mm-hmm. deeply intertwined with who they are as as a being, as a, as a human. And so I wanted this to come across in the images. I wanted this attachment to place and attachment to landscape and that, that the spiritual attachment and, and the knowledge as well of a landscape to come through that, 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 that humans and landscape are, are tied, particularly when, when we're talking about First Nations people and their deep understanding of how humans relate to the land and how land relates to, to, to humans as well. Mm-hmm. So when, with, with the, I suppose, many subjects you worked with, many women, from that stolen generation, they, they were were they taken at a very young age, and do they do they still remember, you know, that time often? Or I, I guess it varies, but I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you you had many conversations with with um, the people you photographed. Mm, it it is really variable. So okay. some were taken as very young children and have no memory of their family, and and others were taken as teenagers. Um, others were even taken, you know, as old as fifteen or sixteen years old, and then placed mm. as domestic domestic maids in into white households. Mm. So we don't have a history like like in the states of of uh, slave labor but the the first nations people who were removed w- were placed into houses or institutions and, and were not paid mm. um so i i guess it, i don't want to go too political here yeah. but they were not they they were not they were not being paid for right. labor at that point mm-hmm. in in time that they, they were maids and they received board um, you know, in return for their service. Um, so, mm-hmm. so it it was across the board and and all different ages. Um, and some children from from families, let's say a, a family may have had four or five children, they they may have lost one or two, or they may have lost four or five. Um, mm. and they they the children that it's. I mean, it, it's it's kind of this horror upon horror, but but many children were taken that that appeared in a particular way that had a particular appearance that could integrate from that was it was perceived they would integrate better into non-indigenous society because of their physical appearance. So, mm. so it was also based on on the physical appearance. Um, in the case of some children. Um, so you know, it's the, the further you dig, the 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 more um, horrific it becomes. Actually, mm-hmm. mm. you know, and I'm curious. So as you 
going maybe to the beginning of this project, was it, how did you, you, you learned about the apology, um, uh, and did it take you to actually be physically away from Australia to really, maybe th is that how you possibly reacted stronger to this whole, you know, th this apology and the whole, what's mm. associated with that? You know what I mean? <laughs> De definitely. I think you can only look at your own culture and your own society when you are distanced from it because it's all about perspective, isn't it? That that when mm -hmm. you move into a different space, you have a different perspective on either what you have heard or what you have kind of assumed growing up and then you move away from that and, and you, you realise you, you realize many things that you wouldn't have necessarily if you were embedded in it. Um, and I also realized from, from living abroad how, how deeply Australian I am, you know, how much <laughs> the landscape, you know, how much the place means to me and the, mm -hmm. the landscape, the light, um, the everything, everything about Australia I, I miss and I long for. And because I, I live in London now, as, as I mentioned, and, Mm -hmm. That was also the case then. I, I went back to Australia and I moved back for several years and I and I realised how deeply linked I am to the history of Australia and the denial of history as well. And and as a non-Indigenous Australian, I also reflected on my role in this as well. Um, mm -hmm. And... I'm still. I mean, I'm still reflecting on it. You know, I'm still reflecting on the question of of whether I have the right to tell these stories because I I I, I am from an Irish uh, Irish background, primarily mm -hmm. Irish, a little bit of English, but mostly an Irish background. So there are all these other questions of do, do I have the right to tell these stories, which are not my own? Um, you know, is this the right way to tell them? Um, mm -hmm. Who am I to tell these to, to to kind of even venture into these waters? when perhaps perhaps my family were perpetrators of this violence generations ago. I mean, I I don't know this. Nobody does. Um, mm. And these are all the questions that surround this issue of, well, who were the perpetrators um, and what did they believe? And, and, and if we are the descendants of people that were involved in, in some of these crimes, which many of us, have to be simply on a statistical yeah. front. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What does that mean? You know, for mm -hmm. what are the implications of that? And and I don't know. I don't know my family history as so many Australians don't. So much of it has been lost mm -hmm. um, that I couldn't say one way or the other. Um, but I think I've reflected on all of these questions and I continue to think about them. But you're right. It was really only through through leaving Australia that that I was able to gain perspective and, and insight and also just to really to really look at the telling of Australian history. I mm -hmm. think one possibly needs to be abroad or, or away from Australia to look more broadly and more openly at that. So that was all a part of me coming to this understanding of our past and really wanting to dig into it more and, and continue to dig into it even today. Mm-hmm. You raised an interesting um, question, or maybe an, <laughs> maybe something, as you said, you, an ethical dilemma, perhaps mm. that you're struggling with, um, with regards to um, whether you have the quote unquote right um, to tell the story. Um, is that? Did you ever receive any pushback, perhaps, on on you telling that story? I mean, it's obviously through 
through an artistic lens, but um, I haven't yet. I, okay. I hope. I hope. I hope I don't. Um, yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> yeah, I really hope so. But I haven't yet. Um, all okay. of the people who I worked with were just incredibly supportive of it. They were. They mm -hmm. were just. You know, they were amazing. And I worked with Susan in a professional capacity. So Susan became the kind of the protagonist of this story and I worked with her at SBS, which is Special Broadcasting Station in, in Australia at one of mm. the television stations. So I knew her in a professional capacity and she worked for National Indigenous Television Station at the time, which I also freelanced for. So that's how mm. I met her and how I got mm -hmm. to know her. Um, and I think that was really that was really advantageous for for the series because I was coming at it from a perspective of um, of, of, of mutuality, of, of shared interest that these stories um, were, were being explored in that in that capacity by the, the National Indigenous Television Station where mm. there was a mix of, of First Nations people and, and non-First Nations people. So I think that also was, was an interesting part of it and a further interesting part of it which – one of the other, um, one of the other people in the series, Eliza, who became a friend and is just an amazing person, as all the women are. But she says that she walks two worlds. You know, she has one foot in the in the in the, in the white Australian wor world mm. and one foot in the First Nations Australian mm. world. And one of the major difficulties is how do these worlds combine? And so. So that is interesting as well. That that, that 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 everybody in Australia is is a mix of things. You know, we are all a huge mix, and First Nations people are also a, a mix of different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of First Nations First Nations Australians also have a mix of Irish as well, which is really interesting. So mm -hmm. they so these things are also quite fascinating. Um, but to get to back to your original question, no, I haven't received any kind of negative criticism around it, um, and and I'm still exploring these topics. Um, but I'm trying to find a way that that feels that that is the right fit for me to tell mm -hmm. it. You know, with with my Irish background and and my kind of who who I am. Um, but at the same time, I I have to say I don't think we should all only ever be allowed to tell just our own stories that feels right. very limiting mm -hmm. um and it also yep. feels then where we're really shifting a, a massive massive issues onto other people's shoulders um you know if we do that in australia for example if we say well we can't talk about this issue um then does that mean that we're leaving it up to First Nations Australians who are who make up about four percent, roughly three point eight, I think, four percent of the population, mm. then that seems that that's also completely unfair. So where is mm -hmm. that happy medium of who who is allowed to who is allowed to make this work and um and and and, and when are we allowed as well, I right. suppose. All of these things change and shift yeah, also. It's an interesting uh, well it's certainly an interesting thought process to to think about these things because when you think about well if somebody reports on the, on the war well they may mm -hmm. not be from that particular nation they're reporting on whether it's the ukraine or whatever right but they we would still we might not challenge that as much but then again as you said it's all about perspective as well so i think it is good to have these these stories told by different perspectives right and and look at 
kind of the cumulative <laughs> uh, maybe story, so to say, and not just one, you know, mm. one story. Mm. I, I don't know, but um, absolutely, I, I think so. And the the main thing I'm trying to do with with my work is to emotionally engage people. So. Mm-hmm. It's not saying this is my experience in this case, but it's saying these things have happened. So I'm, you know, I I feel that it's perhaps part of my responsibility actually to say this, Mm -hmm. this is my, my skill, I think is photography and, and making this work. So, so how can I contribute to this conversation in a meaningful way rather than being too scared to ever talk about it? Because I think that, to, to not be courageous uh, because you're because you're scared that that it's not your place can also be problematic. Yeah. Um. Yep. So I think you know I, I also feel that sometimes we this is my way of of acknowledging history and this is my contribution to it that 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 maybe if 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 I come from ancestors who were somehow involved in conflict or were involved in these things, you know, maybe this is something positive that I can do. Mm-hmm. Um and and one friend even said, you know, maybe this is your your way of 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 apologizing as well. And I yep. thought that was an interesting point that, yeah, that it's maybe it's also point. kind of mm-hmm. my personal apology as well. Um so that's that's also a part of it, you know, and I think that's quite interesting. And I think mm-hmm. to take to take responsibility for these things is so incredibly important in the, you know, to, to acknowledge and take responsibility is so important. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to talk about another project. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, it's ca- This one is called No Blood Stained the Waddle. Um, <laughs> this series describes, um, well, you, doc- you artistically document the violent conflicts and massacres of Tasmania's colonization. Um, would you mind telling me a little bit more about that particular piece of history? Mm, absolutely. So in a way, I see all these different bodies of work as being chapters, and I'm still producing these different chapters. Okay. So the first chapter was after the apology, and then the next chapter is the series you just mentioned, Daniel, No Blood Stained the Wattle. So what, uh, the wattle is an Australian native plant, a native flower. Okay. It's a bright yellow flower, and it's it's, it's beautiful. It's quite soft um, in, in texture. Um, it's quite beautiful to touch, and and it's a distinctly Australian Australian flower. It's, you know, it's for me, it's it's one of those, one of those plants that it's just, that's home. Okay. And so the title was was it was really kind of ironic being that that we deny the fact that blood actually stains everything that blood stained the entire landscape and we mm. deny that you know and we we are like no 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 there's there, there has been no bloodshed here there has been there was no war fought ever there was no conflict during colonization is this 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 myth that was created by Britain um you know as as the narrative of the of telling of Australian history so the history that was in history books until about 30 years ago was that it was a somehow a fairly peaceful colonization and that there there are plaques all around Sydney Harbour and there are monuments to to all of the, the the great explorers British great explorers who came and and discovered this land and there is really no mention of of 
of the Indigenous people whose mm. land it was and who had mm-hmm. been there, who are, who are some of the, the have the oldest human that there have been actually some of the oldest human remains found in Australia, um, f- from anywhere in the world. So who had one of the oldest human civilizations um, and oldest humans history histories, and then the British colonization really just obliterated that quite intentionally and has made no reference to it until more recent years. Mm. Um, so this series was about exploring that history and exploring what, what I call or what I believe is the mistelling of Australian history and mm. the, mis- the, 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 the narrative of history that, that my generation was taught. And I believe that our narrative, that the, the history that we believe is so important in our culture, in, in developing national identity and in our understanding of who we are as individuals but also as a nation, as a group. And if we believe certain things happened and, 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 we, and the light was never shone on other events and other things that happened, we grow as a nation and our national identity is 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 un- it's linked to mistruth it's linked to this this um it's really really linked to a, a mistelling you know a, mm-hmm. a misunderstanding of what our history was so yeah. this series is really exploring this um and and what i i call the historical forgetting so this intentional forgetting um, or the, the anthropologist William Stanner calls it the disremembering of Australian history, which I think is quite a beautiful way of talking about it, that, that we disremembered the Aboriginal Australians, the, the First Nations Australians. Mm. And this is really what that series is about. It's about looking at how history was told in Australia. Um, because we were, when I grew up, we were taught that colonization happened we were not taught about the wars that actually happened or the massacres that happened and we were not taught that first nations australians had actually fought very hard for their land um and that there had been major conflicts between the two sides between the colonizers the settlers and the first nations people um and that there had actually been declared wars mm. none of this had been kind of disclosed until more recent years um so this series was about going to i i went to the massacre sites um throughout the island state of tasmania so tasmania is the island in the south of australia and using the research of this amazing professor, Professor Lyndall Ryan, I, I researched the massacre sites based on her incredible 10 or 15 years of, of research around the massacres. Hmm. And then I photographed in these sites and then I distorted the films. So I manipulated and interfered with the films and I scratched them. I painted on them. I overlaid them. I scanned them to sandwich them and scanned them together and then I, I overlaid other paintings by um, British British artists and painters of scenes that were made during the time of colonisation when all of these horrific wars were happening, but mm-hmm. they were depicting this time as, as peaceful and gentle mm. and wonderful with people dancing around a fire and all of these mistruths and misrepresentations mm. of what was happening at the time. And you saw the... If 
if I understand this correctly, so with the you kind of that scratching of the negatives, or was that kind of a reflection of the or interpretation of the violence? Maybe is that a fair statement, or what yes. you try to maybe convey with this? Definitely, definitely. It was, it was, it was a few things actually. It was kind of about trying to uncover truths. Um, okay. Not that there is ever one truth, you know. There's always mm -hmm. multi-layered truths, but it yep. was about uncovering hidden histories. So it was about uncovering what had happened and what what had been denied to Australians as well. In the terms that if if you're not exposed to something or told of told other truths about something then you can't ever kind of, you don't know what you don't know so mm -hmm. so that was a, my way of kind of trying to uncover other things which I had not been taught or hadn't known simply because the society in Australia at the time didn't include um didn't include this in the in the curriculum in the um in the education of of, of my generation so it was mm -hmm. about uncovering but it was also about putting yes it was also about about I suppose expressing this violence onto the films, which the mm. landscape had bore witness to, um, because I think I think something that's really fascinating is can a landscape witness something? You know, like if if there is if there is no actual, there's no physical remains of the violence. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know whether you know Donald Weber's War Sands body of work. I, no, I don't. It's an amazing body of work, and and he went to the D-Day landing and um, studied the grains of sand and found shrapnel still in hmm. these grains of sand. I, I think it was about eight percent. I'm not sure exactly. It's um, I would have to go back to his book, but that was really fascinating. That there was a physical, there were physical remains from mm -hmm. that violence. Um, yeah. And in the case of Australia, there's there's no physical remains mm -hmm. it's too long ago we can't we can't uncover them or we probably don't know what we're looking for either mm -hmm. so it's really mm -hmm. interesting to think about the landscape you know like the trees almost as people and and, and witnesses yep. <laughs> to what's happened mm -hmm. um so that was a part of it was looking at the landscape as a witness to atrocity and yep. and as a as a witness to it is a very big word, a very problematic word, um, and it's not used yet in the in in talking about Australia's colonisation. But but whether or not it was a genocide, and whether mm -hmm. or not that word should be used, um, and um, and and yeah, whether whether the landscape was a witness to that. So that mm -hmm. was that was all part of the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks thanks for sharing that. That's really helpful, and we will link obviously for our listeners to. To your work and <laughs> these projects wonderful. specifically in Great. the show notes as well um Great. yeah um really you know it's it's amazing when you when you look at the work it's still there there's beauty to it but then of course it 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 does really i i feel like as a, as a viewer it, it does resonate how you describe that to me um that that you can connect to to these things maybe in a you know not in a such an explicit way of showing violence right it's a much more subtle way of showing it um, yeah exactly and i think you know i i want to be subtle and i want the images to be beautiful too because mm -hmm. i think we have to lure an audience in with beauty um yep. because yep. we are we are naturally drawn towards towards beauty that's an yep. in, in an, an unavoidable part of of human nature so yep. i think that's actually very important and 
I actually I stand by there there is often a kind of um I suppose a lot of people fighting against the kind of the anti-aesthetic movement or the anti anti-beauty movement and and yep. I'm on the opposite <laughs> foot I I really believe there is a place for beauty in our work yep. and yep. I think that work having that element of beauty is also really talking as well about the contradictions that exist within the human psyche and within history and within human nature that that this these wars occurred these massacres occurred the landscape bore witness to to, to horrific violence and atrocity but out of it many of us were born you know that, that wouldn't have otherwise been born or we came from that so mm-hmm. everything is is complex and multi-layered and by by using beauty overlaid with with other elements in the image i'm i'm indicating this i'm talking about the complexity that exists within every history and every culture every nation and that really exists within humanity mm-hmm. um and that's also part of the multi-layering is is this suggestion that that everything is complex and there's not right, one right. simple way of ever looking at anything. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to shift gears a little bit and uh, talk about a couple of other things you're working on. Mm-hmm. Um let's start with the the Lumina collective. Uh I just like to maybe if you can tell me a little bit more about uh the collective and how you were involved starting it, right? And um, yeah, maybe just give a little bit more background about this. Absolutely. Um, A very close friend of mine, Morgana McGee, and I started the collective, um, now it was about six years ago now, and we began the collective really as a way of supporting female female identifying photographic artists um, in Australia at the time. I was still living in Australia and then very shortly after we formed it, I left to move to London. Mm. Um, but the, the group was put together really as a support platform to share work, to to engage with other other photographic artists who were working in similar similar documentary thematic way. Um, and it was really, it was really meant as, as a support and, and, and a networking, um, group of people who would, who would be generous. Um, because I think one of the down, well, one of the many kind of sad, um, I suppose sad results of the way the photographic industry has gone is that there is so little work and there are so little opportunities that sometimes this can have the knock-on effect of people not being open to not not always being generous because people yep. are fearful then because there's yep. so few opportunities people have to kind of grab them and hold on to them tightly yep. and i i kind of loathe that you know i, I loathe <laughs> lack mm-hmm. of generosity and 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 we morgana and i wanted to be we wanted this group to act as a platform of generosity for for each other but then also to kind of create a space for women photographers to say that you know we can all be generous there is room for all of us and as an inclusive device to to model this in this this inclusive and encouraging and supportive and and generous community so that was the basis um from Mm -hmm. which it started oh wonderful now you're also 
a lecturer at two universities and you also do mentoring uh, work. Can you tell me a little bit more about your mentoring work? Yes, absolutely. Well, I've actually just taken on a, um, it's a four day a week role at London College of Communication as the course leader on the photojournalism and documentary master's degree. So mm. my mentoring has, I have had to kind of calm that down or cool that down, down a little, little bit, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, because I absolutely loved that. I still have several students um, who, who I've been working with for some years. Um, I have one student, I think of in particular, who we, we, we had a session the other day and I've been working, I worked with her over the pandemic, through the pandemic. And I've watched her grow and, and, and discover herself as a photographic artist and change from being a photojournalist. Um, the, the, the photographer I'm thinking of works for the, for the New York Times and does, you know, amazing, amazing work that is commissioned. But I've seen her switch gears and, and make her own work for, for her as an artist. And that's so rewarding. It's so incredibly rewarding. And, and so I still do work with with mentees. I still do mentor people, but it's just at a slower at a slower level these days, and at, at a, just a, a more gentle pace mm -hmm. than what I was doing. I started mentoring people over the during the pandemic because I felt I feel that there is a, there's a real lack, I think, of um, help available for photographic practitioners when you get mm -hmm. to a certain point. Um, I think we all need a mentor. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I would love to have a mentor um, because I think we all, we need someone to push us. So we need someone to guide us. So we need someone to kind of critically evaluate or critically analyze our work. But not mm -hmm. all of us want to go back into education. Not all of us want to do another master's degree. Um, and so the mentoring really started out as to, to, to fulfill that that gap in the industry that I knew of so many photographers that were doing very well, but really just needed an, a, another push kind mm -hmm. of over the, over the finish line. And then, yep. and then <laughs> from their support, ongoing support from there, because yep. it's never over, is it? You know, I'm, I'm sure for yourself, it's the same thing. You're, you're always questioning yourself, aren't you? And thinking, Oh God, yep. I really do with yep. some more support around a particular idea or a particular body of work. Yeah. And that's where, that's where the mentoring began. And, and I've loved it. You know, it's been such a joy to be able to do. And mm -hmm. it's, I'm quite sad that I don't have the time now to do yeah, as much no, as I would have <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, with regards to speaking of uh, lecturing, I did see your TED Talk from Geneva, um, mm -hmm. which we will link uh, in the show notes as well. I found this to be a fantastic introduction to your work. It was obviously focused on one of the projects we discussed. Um, I was kind of, I was actually impressed how calm you were on that big stage. <laughs> so <laughs> how, how was that experience for you? Um, wow. It was nerve wracking. I mean, there were about 800 I can people in that audience. <laughs> you didn't and, see it though. <laughs> oh gosh. Oh, wow. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you didn't. I mean, I'm just glad that my voice wasn't shaking because I definitely yeah. felt shaky. You could probably see me tapping my foot. That was probably <laughs> the giveaway that I was really nervous. And the really difficult thing about TED Talks is you have to memorize the entire talk. There's no notes. Oh. You don't have auto cue. Um, okay. It's actually quite annoying. In that talk, there are screens where you can see the slides that you have. Um, mm -hmm. So you're flicking through and you can see the slides on the on the little screen at the bottom of the stage. And I think people assume that's auto-cue. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, well, I, I didn't know either, but I, I kind of assumed, but then I, I didn't know for sure either. Yeah, no, so it's not. 
Huh. It's not you're not allowed as part of the TED Talk policy that oh, you sign. You're okay. actually not allowed to have any notes, and you're not allowed to have any any and any cues. Um, hmm. And you're you know you have to memorize it. You you it's it's a really big process actually, and you have to rehearse um, quite a lot with the mm-hmm. team who has asked you to do the talk. So we had quite a lot of online um, rehearsals, and then we had. Um, I went for the whole weekend and we just had quite a few rehearsals the day before and on the day. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, it's, it's a huge thing. And I remember going for walks and I had recorded myself doing the talk and then I would just go over it and over it and over it for mm. weeks. Um, yeah, it was, uh, wow. it was massive, but actually I loved it. I actually, yeah. I loved, I loved doing that talk and I was so grateful to be asked and, mm-hmm. I did. There were some amazing other speakers as well, so I met some incredible people um, while doing it, and it was just beautiful that 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 work, I suppose, got that that kind of attention because mm-hmm. it, for mm-hmm. me, it's so important. I think for the history of Australia as well, it's 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 really important, and I still I feel really passionately about it. So it was a beautiful experience to be able to talk about it, and you know, really just a great experience to see how that. How, how the TED Talks work um, and, and to be involved in it was really such fun, actually. I, I actually mm-hmm. loved it. I'd, I'd definitely oh, do another one if I was asked. Oh, that's great to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's very mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I'm, are you still okay with time? So I just have a couple more questions, but let me know um, how you're doing really? on time. No, all good. I've got as much time as okay, okay. no hurry whatsoever. Okay, wonderful. Um, so... I did read you spend your time between Sydney and London. You are in London right now, um, you mentioned, right? Yes, that's um, right. Do you still, so it, are there times during the year where you are actually in Sydney? So are you going back and forth or are you mostly based in London? I'm now mostly in London. Um, okay. my, I have an eight-year-old son and he goes to school here. So okay. I'm kind of bound by the school terms. Um, yep. So when he was smaller, I would go home much more frequently to Australia because we didn't we didn't have to you know abide by any kind of regulations around schooling. But now that he's in in an English school, they have quite strict just quite a strict policy about attendance. So yeah, yeah. Fortunately, I, as much as I would love to, I can't take him out um, to go to Australia. So it's only during the school holidays that I go. Um, sure. Which is yep. not, it's not it's not long enough. In all honesty, I would like to go for longer, but I'm, yep. I'm a really pragmatic person. And when you know, and I think being a mother as well, I'm I'm sure all parents are like this that you make do with what you're given and you you make right. it work. So that's how I that's how I that's how I work now. I just I just make it work, and it has yep. to. But um, yeah, I'm I'm in London. I would say nine. Probably no, probably ten months of the year, and then back home probably two months of the year. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now I want to go back to the a little bit uh, about the your creative process, and you you alluded, you know, we talked about some of your projects um, or chapters, <laughs> um, and um, you know, I you mentioned a little bit that you you use you're quite intuitive in in your work, I guess, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm curious how you balance this maybe with the more deliberate um, side of of the creative process or you know how yeah just how you go about it I guess um, I'm just curious we talked a little bit about the tools and techniques already um, mm. but 
yeah, just curious mm. to talk a little bit about that with you. Yeah, sure. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because in, intuition is really hard to explain or describe mm -hmm. because yep. it's, <laughs> it's something that's so deeply felt. It's almost like our own personality or something like that. It's very difficult to analyze it because it, it's you. It's it's who you are. It's who you've always been. Um, color is really important, though, for me mm -hmm. when I'm talking about intuition. Um, so my series evolve um as i said i think before when i was talking about after the apology and i said that red and orange was incredibly important for that series most of my work comes from one particular tone or one particular color so if we're to um maybe, maybe i could talk briefly about um the series i did during lockdown which is called yeah. um that would be lovely. Thank you. Um, where does the sky end and space begin? Which is a very personal body of work. And the title comes from my son. He made that, he, he asked that question. He said, you know, mommy, where does, where does the sky end and space begin? And yeah, and that, <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> isn't it just like yeah. as adults, we never think about these things anymore. Right, right. <laughs> and I just thought so right. And and so I, I started to do this work when I when I wasn't able to go home. I wasn't able to get home during the pandemic because, of course, there were no flights. Australia was in complete uh, like complete shutdown. It was closed to the world for almost two years, and nobody was allowed to visit for most of that time. Um, flights were outrageously expensive. You know, they were ten thousand pounds upwards um, for one flight. They would just mm. It was just an impossible situation, and and at that time, my mother got very sick, and and I and we didn't know if she would survive at that point, and I couldn't get home, and it was just, mm. I mean, it's just such a heartbreaking situation to find yourself in, mm -hmm. and so I, I can't, I started to photograph really as as a way to get through that experience. Um, so I suppose this is where the intuition kicks in that. I knew I had to make work because it's what makes me feel good. It's it's mm. what makes me feel okay. Um, and when I'm making work, I'm lost in the flow of, of creativity and the flow of mm. making work and I'm lost in the moment. So I guess it's mindfulness really and, mm -hmm. and meditative and I'm not thinking about that, that trauma of being separated from my family, who, who I'm very close to, and my mother particularly. So I wasn't thinking about that while I was making work. And, and so that intuition of, of physically making became so important in that particular series. And as I made it, I realized that I wanted to shoot in black and white because I, I felt kind of I felt stark and, and and a bit a bit like all my color had kind of mm -hmm. been bleached out of me I felt you know it was a, for most people the pandemic was a really difficult time and mm -hmm. for I think particularly for people who weren't at home and didn't have family around them um, it was a really hard time so I kind of felt that I was devoid of color because I felt like the joy had had been sucked out of my mm -hmm. life um, mm -hmm. so I I guess I see joy as color actually um, and so I, I photographed really for the first time in years in black and white for that series. Mm -hmm. But then slowly as kind of, you know, as, 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 part, as little bits of joy came back into my life or little bits of happiness, I, they, they were the color bits. They were the color sparks in the work. So, so there's a lot of blue tones in that work and there's some red, which is quite, quite violent, almost quite blood red actually. Mm -hmm. 
but they they were kind of the the lively parts of me um and these blues just kind of mixed with the black and white and 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 so I so the this kind of evolution of the series happened through going through black and white into into these blues, a little bit of red, black in, back into black and white, and the series just naturally evolved from that point. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, I I did a lot of prints at that point, um, so physical prints, and I did a lot of editing of it in physical form, putting it on walls, printing it out. Um, I did a lot of Polaroids. Um, I did anything I could use at that point. Um, and and so it was like this, it was basically kind of like feeling my way through the dark. And mm. that's that's really the way I work a lot with with personal work. It's like when I don't have a so I knew what I wanted to explore and what I wanted to express, and it was this mm-hmm. it was longing, actually. It was longing mm. and it was um I, I guess trauma is not too strong a word to use for being separate mm-hmm. at that point and trapped. It was being trapped. It was it was this sense of this complete lock, this a complete loss of control, this complete mm-hmm. kind of um, loneliness as well was a massive part of it. And I knew all the emotions I wanted to express. And but how how does one do that? That's a really difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I just started to make, and and it sounds so. Um, I suppose unacademic and almost <laughs> simple, but it was this act of making. You know, I went back into my archive and I found some landscape images that really spoke to me, and I printed them out, and then I manipulated them physically. I painted on them, I cut them, I scratched mm. them, and it was this. You know, it was a physical kind of um, discovery. It was like a, you know, and I would, I would, I always urge all students when when they're kind of trapped in their own fear of of not being able to make or produce they just have to make something it doesn't matter if it's any good or not it's just making something you know and then you're off then you're off and running but you mm-hmm. have to you have to make that's that's the most important thing of all mm-hmm. um so i hope that i hope in a way that answers the question about intuition no it's a wonderful <laughs> wonderful a wonderful answer yes absolutely um yeah it's reminds me um when I was thinking about creative, the so-called creative block a while mm. ago and, and did a little, I think I did even a little episode about it. But mm. uh, when I, and I was thinking about that some more, I know Picasso said, uh, the muse has to find you working. <laughs> mm. So it kind of mm-hmm. like resonate, you know, just kind of echoing what you just said that, you know, part of it is just do the work and, and just keep going, which is not always easy. I understand, of course, but, um, but yeah, that's no. It was a very a great answer that you gave. Thank you for that. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's so true though, isn't it? It's it's through the making that we discover things. You know, it's, yep, it's part of the yep, training. It's yep. it's just so important that we never stop making, and in a physical way as well by printing our prints and yeah, um, printing is making. yeah. I I do agree. It, it's great. So when you say printing, is it still darkroom printing, or is it or also just digital print or so-called well it's not digital but via you know just a printer i guess yes um okay. at the time for that series it was it was all it was all inkjet kind of all basically okay. wherever and however i could yep, however was open. Could get um, it done. exactly at that point <laughs> yeah. but but yes and now and now i could do a combination as well um okay yeah so it's, okay. it's always a combination mm. wonderful so a couple more questions before we wrap up so um one is just for 
you know, for other photographers who are maybe interested in getting into, let's say, documentary photography, or maybe something like you do, where maybe you you document some some issues and artistically expressing them, what what would be some of your advice? And maybe some of it we already talked about. (laughs) Just Mm. do, just start. But um, Mm. beyond that, (laughs) beyond that. Pick a subject that you're passionate about. Do you know that okay. you re- that you care deeply about? Um, mm-hmm. That's so important because we, you know, as, as as you know and I know, we're not going to get a kind of financial any financial rewards these days, or they will be mm-hmm. slim. Um, and so you have to make the work, I believe, for yourself, um, for the joy of making it as mm-hmm. well. So. Mm-hmm. I think a trap that many of us, and myself included, fall into is that we make the work and then we kind of pin the success of that work onto who sees it or who critically appraises, you know, gives it, gives it the, the, the thumbs up or the, yeah. the, the, the tick of approval. Um, and I think that can be really devastating. So mm. I really do think we need to make the work simply for the, the absolute joy of making work and the necessity of that because I think all of us photographers makers slash artists we're at our best when we're when we're doing what we love we're at our best so everything else in our life will be better because we're making so I think the first thing to do is to 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 choose a subject that you're absolutely passionate about the second thing is, I think, to not judge yourself too harshly because we mm. all do that, and that is just not helpful for anybody. Yeah. Um, and the third thing, I think, is that it takes so much time. Um, for me, I, I think I've probably been happy with my work for about the last eight years, but, you know, I've been photographing since I was 14 years old um, <laughs> and I'm 42 mm-hmm. now. So that, yeah, that's a long a time, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> It really is. So mm-hmm. I think if we're in a hurry, then we're not going to be satisfied because it's not the kind of industry where we can hurry into it and hurry out of it. Mm-hmm. It's it's slow and I think it's a lifetime dedication. So mm-hmm. I think do and the fourth thing, do it for yourself. You know, make it make make the work for yourself, mm-hmm. not not to fit into a particular group, not to get yeah. uh, anyone's approval. Um, but but do it for your own for your own approval and because mm-hmm. it just makes you a better person. I think mm. that's the most important thing. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Thank you. So, okay. and then hopefully an easy question <laughs> at the end. <laughs> um, where can people best find you online? <laughs> the only one that I can't, I won't go on for hours about. Um, <laughs> my my website is aletheacasey.com or I'm on Instagram as well as um, Alethea Casey is my handle. Okay. So they would be the best places. I'm I'm not great at social media. Okay. Um, I should mention actually just to finish off because I'm I'm really I'm really happy at the moment that I am part of a print sale. Can I mention a print sale that I'm yeah, part of? Yeah, of course, I'm, of course. Yep. I'm, I'm really touched by it and I just wanted to say something about it because there is an amazing photographer, Amy Vital. Now, I'm never sure whether you say Vitale or Vital, who's an American photographer, does incredible and works work on um, absolutely beautiful, beautiful work around, around environment and animal photography. And hmm. um, I was lucky enough to meet the wonderful Nick Brandt in Paris a couple of weeks ago. 
and and Amy and Nick invited Morgana, my my wonderful friend and myself, to um to be involved in this print sale, and half of the proceeds go to um the Jane Goods um foundation, and it's it has just this they, they both both all of the people who are involved um in the vital impact. Um, which is the organisation that's running it, are so dedicated to environment and to doing something good with photography. And mm-hmm. so I just wanted to mention it to you because yeah. not so much as a way of, of selling work but as a way to say when you're in the industry long enough, I think you you stumble into people who are your people and who you feel like, wow, these people are doing something great, you know, mm-hmm. they're giving back in a really meaningful way. Oh, and yeah. so that's kind of the latest exciting thing that oh, that's I wonderful. feel really passionately about. Yeah, and we can, we'll link to that in the show notes as well so then that people can actually find, find that as well. So that, that'll be great. That would be wonderful. Thank you. I'm, I'm so I'm so delighted you asked me to to come on, Daniel. Thank you. It's such such an honor to speak to you. Thank you. Oh so no, much. no, it, the honor is, is all mine. And yeah, really, uh, Alethea, thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today. Oh, thank you. Well, I look forward to listening to to more of your podcasts with other photographers. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks, Daniel. All right, this wraps up my conversation with Alethea Casey. As always, we'll have links in the show notes to her website, Instagram, as well as some of the projects we discussed and some other resources. Thanks so much for listening and talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.